this moment, this time, what I control is what I do. Not how I feel, but what I choose to do. And they throw deep to an open receiver. Touchdown, Alabama. We're just warriors, man. We fight to the end with everything we do, man. That's why we're going to win them that and repeat. We have one more opportunity to see what we can do, and I know we'll play a really good team, whoever it is. This team will be defined by what? What we do now. Georgia, the whole night through, manhandling Michigan, dominating them from start to finish, and booking that revenge tour matchup with Alabama and Indy. And there it is, Indianapolis, the site of Monday night's national championship game, just five days away now. All eyes will certainly be on the two teams left standing Monday night. One of those, certainly a familiar face because they've been there, oh, I don't know, six times previously. In the 2014 season, Alabama was the top seed, but upset by Ohio State at the Sugar Bowl, led by third-string quarterback Cardell Jones, Zeke Elliott rushed for a record 230 yards. A year later, they were back, shut out Michigan State 38 to nothing in the Cotton Bowl before beating Clemson in the national title game, thanks in large part to 208 yards from O.J. Howard. Round two came the year later. This time, Clemson, though, got revenge thanks to Deshaun Watson hitting Hunter Renfro for the game-winning score. Those two teams would meet again a year later, this time in the semifinal game, before facing Georgia in the title game, winning in overtime on a walk-off touchdown from Devontae Smith. And then this, after beating Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl, it was round four between Bama and Clemson. This one was all Tigers. Trevor Lawrence led Clemson to the win. Then after missing the playoffs, Bama was back in 2020, a dominating performance all year, culminating with a win over Ohio State. Marty Smith is in Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa where the Tide are certainly getting ready. And, Marty, uh, we've established how difficult it is to beat a team twice in one season. What did the Tide have to say about the opportunity to do that against Georgia? Wendy, good afternoon. They're extremely confident here in Tuscaloosa, and that confidence is based on preparation. It's based on experience, both good and bad this season, and from the top to the bottom of the roster, and it's based on extreme respect for the University of Georgia football program. It's interesting that before that SEC championship game back on December 4th, Alabama had been favored for 92 consecutive games entering that SEC championship. They were the underdog in that game, and then they went and dominated that game. Well, they're the underdog again, which running back Brian Robinson says, somehow, they're kind of used to around here. Being an underdog is, you know, it's just one of those normal feelings, you know. Sometimes we always feel like the underdog, even when we, you know, expected to win a game, you know, just just a mindset that our team have. Just a mindset that our team live with, you know, just always having that underdog mindset. So I feel like, you know, we'll be motivated. We'll, we'll come out, you know, with the underdog mentality, you know, and we'll be ready to play. We've never been that type of team to be cocky or anything like that. Or, oh, we beat them. We're going to do this again. We're very humble. We know the challenges we have. We know everything that I expect from Georgia. Um, we never want to go into a game with a big head. You know what I'm saying? So um, everybody's been level-headed. And I think, you know, it's important for our players to know um, what they need to do to be able to continue to have success in the next game, regardless of what happened in the last game and regardless who was favored and who was underdogs and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, 
you know, everybody has pride in performance. Everybody wants to go play well. You heard Will Anderson there discuss the humility on this Crimson Tide roster, and they certainly got humbled in, uh, when they played Texas A&M earlier this season. Nick Saban pointed to that game when he spoke to the media yesterday as a very important moment for this team. This Crimson Tide roster is very young. And prior to that loss, Coach Saban said that some of those young contributors had maybe lost a bit of respect for the difficulty and the challenge that it takes to become victorious every single time out. Well, when Texas A&M beat them, that all changed. And, of course, they've been unblemished since. The Tide are currently preparing for that national championship against Georgia as we speak right now. Some of the players and the offensive and defensive coordinators will address the media here in less than an hour, and I will have the opportunity to chat with many players and Coach Saban tomorrow morning here on campus, Wendy. Marty, we're looking forward to it. And listen, there's folks a lot smarter than me. It is going to take me a month to figure out how they're used to being the underdog in Tuscaloosa. But if it works, it works. You and me both. You know what? We'll take it. We look forward, <laughs> we look forward to seeing you again soon. Meanwhile, of course, on the opposite side of the coin is Georgia. Uh, a slightly different resume, but nonetheless established. The Bulldogs will be making their second trip to the college football playoff. In 2017, they were the three seed, beat Oklahoma in two overtimes in a Rose Bowl thriller. Running back Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb rushed for over 300 yards in that win. And then in the national title game, Georgia jumped out to a 13-0 lead at halftime before Nick Saban and company put the game in ice. In overtime on second and 26, Tua Tungavailoa hit Devontae Smith for the walk-off touchdown. It's a scene all too familiar for the Bulldogs as we say hello to Gene Wojciechowski. And Gene, look, this team has often had the lead. They've also often been in good position against Alabama, and yet Kirby Smart 0-4 against Coach Saban. I know he's been asked a lot about it this week. What's he have to say? Well, he was asked about it again this morning. Uh, I asked him, I said, have you just about had it with being asked about being 0-4 against Nick Saban and this narrative that somehow Saban and Alabama are in Georgia's head? He didn't really take the bait. He basically said that a lot of teams are owing something against Nick Saban and Alabama. He didn't take it personally. I asked him if he considered Alabama a nemesis. He said, no, not a nemesis, an opportunity. To be the best, you have to beat the best. And he considers Alabama the absolute best right now. But interesting, Wendy, I said, do you give yourself, even just for the briefest moment, think about what it would be like to win a national championship and do it against that guy, Nick Saban, on the other sideline? He says he doesn't operate that way. He doesn't think that way. But his players said this morning that they absolutely think it would mean a lot to him, not only, of course, to win the national championship, but to do it against someone he respects, like Nick Saban. Yeah, no question. How, how could it not, Gene, really? You know what's interesting about this whole season, really? Georgia's defense had one bad game, you know, and it came, unfortunately, in the SEC championship game against Alabama. And then they bounced back, really. No, no, questions, no question that they did. Uh, what's this defense have to say about their bounce-back performance and what that means looking ahead? Well, there's two parts of this. One is what the SEC championship did. 
it basically, according to, to most of the players that we talked to today, it was sort of like smelling salts. Uh, Jordan Davis used that term. Uh, Nicobe Dean said that it opened their eyes. Kirby Smart said it, it was a wake-up call for a lot of these players that they had, when they watched that film, they had to look in the mirror and ask themselves some questions. And they didn't like what they saw. So they made that a priority going into that Michigan game. Poor Michigan, they picked the wrong time to be Georgia's opponent. Also, uh, Georgia had listened to all the talk about Aiden Hutchinson, David Ojabo, how, how Michigan was, it was trending the exact right way going into those playoffs. So they came in there motivated, engaged with something to prove, and that defense absolutely did it against Michigan. Yeah, they, they really did, Woj. Thank you. And there's no question, going back to your point from Kirby Smart, that to be the best, you have to beat the best. Well, they will certainly have that opportunity. And the reason being, of course, they're playing Alabama. How about this for some perspective? Alabama making its ninth appearance in a national championship game since they became an annual occurrence starting in 1998. That's almost twice as many as any other school in the FBS. It's really mind-boggling when you step back and think about just how dominant this program has been, especially, of course, since head coach Nick Saban took over. I don't know that you can put it into perspective, Todd, but let's try. How good has this run been? So good he's speechless. That's well, how good listen, it is. I don't know what Ty was saying, but it was he was brilliant. <laughs> I, I know this. I, I know this really well. Whatever that was, was absolute brilliance. Uh, David, I assume you have an opinion on this as well. How good has Alabama been? <laughs> That's the best Todd's ever sat. He was speechless, Wendy. That's what he was. He was absolutely speechless <laughs> at the job that Nick Saban's done. I think we're running out of adjectives. Like, the adjectives we can use, are, it's just stupid. It's silly. It's insane. Um, to, to, to be a guy that dominated the sport for so long with defense and running the football and lack of quarterback play, to spin into up-tempo and RPOs and spread them out and best wide receiver room in the country year after year, offensively driven team, it's just it's insane. I mean, you're talking about six out of the late last eight national championships he's been to. It's just it's really unbelievable. He, his, the separation between Nick Saban and every other coach that has ever coached is unbelievable. The, the gap is that big. There's no debate when we talk about who the best coach is, and it's still going. Yeah, I tell you what, guys. It's been uh, it's historic. It's incredible. It's mind-blowing. Um, I'm just very, very lucky, very fortunate that I'm doing TV at this time and when he's doing what he's doing. Uh, you know, Nick Saban, to be honest with you, what's been so impressive, Wendy, is the fact that there's like there's been this revolving door of coaches for his staff. Like, because when you're that great and you're having that much success, people are going to come and pluck your coaches off of your staff. But he's still been able to maintain and sustain that high level of, of play, that, that consistently high level of play. No matter who's the offensive coordinator, no matter who's the defensive coordinator, that that constant revolving door of talents, I mean of coaches, still has not deterred Nick Saban and the Alabama Crimson Tide. So you have to give him a lot of credit because he's been doing it with different coaches each year. 
Well, I, Des, you're absolutely right. I don't know how many seasons we've started saying, you know, what's the loss of X mean for Alabama? What's the loss of this coach or that coordinator? And let me tell you, so far, it's almost a moot point. Like, why, why do we ask that question? Because they just don't miss a beat. And Kirby Smart also makes a very good point. A lot of folks are owing whatever against Alabama. I get it. He's being asked about it because that's the team they're playing now. But he's got some good company. And let's go back to the fact that if Georgia wins the national championship, they will have to do so by avenging their earlier loss. And Alabama will have to do it by beating a team twice in the same season. And it's not easy. The fifth time that top five teams will meet twice in one season and each of the previous four times, the team that won the first game lost the second game. And, oh, by the way, they lost by at least three touchdowns. And David, look, I you know I don't know whether it's a, a mental edge or or I don't who knows, but it is difficult to do that. However, Georgia has a unique opportunity here to step up and reverse what they saw in the SEC championship game. Well, think about how great Georgia's been in this run with Kirby Smart. It feels like he's been there for ten seasons. He's been there for six. So. It's been crazy because you think about second year he goes to a national title and falls short. Well, think about the next couple years and the next couple runs with these teams. Wendy, he hasn't got an opportunity to get a rematch. He hasn't got an opportunity to get there because SEC Championship versus Alabama, they fall short. They, they end up at five against LSU with Joe Burrow and company. Lose to them in the SEC Championship game, fall short, end up at five. Now you get a chance to, to get the rematch. Now you get a chance to use... All the negativity, all the yummy rat poison that Coach Saban talked about from everybody else. You get to show the film of them kicking the mess out of you in the SEC championship game. So you know as a player, I got to cover X, Y, and Z. I better be ultra prepared for what's coming my way, Dez. So you know how players are, Dez. You get that bad taste in your mouth. You, you, you want to get it out, man. Yeah, 100%. And I'd say that. Georgia is very fortunate that they're going to have a second shot at Alabama. You know, we never you know, imagined that they would play twice in the same season, but for them to, to play in the SEC championship game and not win that game and then come back now where they can play for all the marbles, um, you want to get that bad taste out of your mouth, beat them when it counts the most. And this is when it counts the most. National TV, Monday Night Football. Are you kidding me? For all the marbles, the championship game will do a – it, it, would, it would be like Listerine for Georgia, for the coaches, for the players, and more importantly, for the fans, too. This would be a, 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 a cup of Listerine if they're able to beat Alabama in a national championship game. Nobody, Wendy, nobody whatsoever will ever mention that SEC championship game if they can pull off the victory Monday night against Alabama. No truer words have ever been spoken, Des. Listen, you'd love to have them both. If you can't have them both, uh, you know, you'd sure as hell rather have this one than the SEC championship game. So they have an incredible opportunity on Monday night. Everybody will be watching. There's just two teams left standing. As college football gets set to crown a new national championship, it will all happen in Indianapolis. It's number one Alabama. 8 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. We'll have pregame coverage all day. And for this matchup, we'll have you covered on every platform, TV, radio, digital, so many ways to watch and listen to what is the most important game, college football game of the year. Still to come, Todd McShay will break down the top NFL draft prospects that we will see on the field in Monday's championship game. Plus, Woj is back and he sat down with Georgia quarterback Stetson Bennett. He'll talk about Bennett's unique journey from Georgia to JUCO and back again. 
That's all coming up next on College Football Live. is your gift. It lifts you above others your age, tempers your explosive talent with calm. The winner of the Heisman Memorial Trophy is Bryce Young. Youth is not always wasted on the young. Let's look at the quarterbacks in this matchup. Stetson Bennett surprisingly has the slight edge in QBR and yards per attempt over the Heisman winner, Bryce Young. But Young has the big advantage when it comes to making the big plays. 70 completions of 20 or more yards this season. Let's look closely now at these two quarterbacks. And, Des, let's start with you and Bryce Young. What stands out to you when you watch his film? Well, for a young quarterback, the first thing that I notice is how poised he is, very calm, under pressure, um, extremely accurate. But his demeanor, his demeanor just exudes a lot of confidence. And then I watch him with the RPO game, and he's got... And, you know, he looked good, but he just continued to get better and better. Here he is right now against um, against Tennessee. That's an RPO. He's going to put the ball into the stomach of the running back. The linebacker comes. He's going to pull and throw it. If he stays back, he's going to give it to the running back. Since the linebacker comes and fills that gap, he pulls the ball and throws it on the slant behind where the linebacker was. But watch how fast he processes everything, gets the ball in his hands, and releases the ball in 2.1 seconds. That's unheard of, Wendy, especially for a young quarterback. Here he is again. This is an RPO, but it has a different layer on it. Now, this is the first layer. Okay, the linebacker, is he going to come? So now he's going to fake the run. He pulls the ball. But the second layer is now the receiver on the hash mark. If the defensive back rides him up the seam, he's going to throw the bubble screen to Mechie, which is a three-layer RPO, and he did everything. Again, catch, read, release in 2.2 seconds. I mean, the man's his hand, his hands are like a magician. His footwork is perfect, and I'm just really blown away how he's progressed in the RPO system. Yeah, Des. Every Scary, time I watch his tape, his I, go ahead, Todd. Well, I'm going to get to a point some, at some point in this show, Wendy, where everything works out well. We're going to start right now. All right, Des, to your point, when I watch his tape, I'm blown away by the fact that this guy's just a first-year starter. He looks like a fourth-year senior every time. And, and the reason I say that is because he beats you with his mind. You don't really have a shot a lot of the time. Forget the physical attributes, the accuracy, the arm strength, the mobility if the play breaks down. He knows what he's looking at defensively, what you show pre-snap. Then when the ball snapped, what you're trying to disguise and what you go into coverage-wise, you look at that the SEC championship game against Georgia, most of their big plays, if not all, were a result of some kind of miscommunication or breakdown in the secondary. Most of them were against zone coverage as well. He knows where you're supposed to be, and if you're, the safety's not there, or you don't bracket his receiver the proper way, or in the case of this game, several times, if you line up a safety and try 
try to match up against John Mechie in that game, he's going to exploit that matchup. So there are so many different times that you see on tape, and especially against Georgia, where he beat you before that ball was even snapped. And, and he just he knows exactly where to go with the ball and when to go with the ball to his targets. All right, Todd, let's, uh, let's keep this up and switch the, flip the switch here. Talk about Stetson Bennett, 29 of 38, three touchdowns, two interceptions in that SEC championship game. So what's he got to do to have a different outcome on Monday night? He's got to get pass protection. That's the big key. And you saw Alabama in that SEC championship game. They mostly went after him with four-man rushes, which means if it was a blitz, they were dropping a guy. So if you can pressure with four men and still drop seven into coverage, you're in really good shape. He was pressured on 34% of his dropbacks, which is 11% higher than any other game this season. So to me, the big key with Stetson Bennett is give him time in the pocket. He had great protection against those outstanding pass rushers and David Ajabu and, and Aiden Hutchinson against Michigan. He completed 70% of his throws with three touchdowns and no interceptions. He's going to need that kind of protection against Alabama, Des, to have a big night. Yeah, I agree with you, Todd. You know, he's also going to have to be the dual-threat quarterback that we've seen because, you know, dual-threat quarterbacks traditionally, historically, have given Nick Saban defenses problems. And he's going to have to make sure his pre-snap and post-snap reads are on point because they're going to try to confuse him. Like you said, when you rush four, you can drop seven. You can do so much on that back end to confuse the quarterback. And I think that's what happened to, to Stetson Bennett the last time they played, which was the FCC championship game. He's going to have to make sure that through his film study, he understands that that post-snap read may be very different than the pre-snap read, and he's going to have to be extremely accurate with the ball. They're going to put a lot of pressure on him physically and mentally during the championship game, Wendy. You know, guys, two very different quarterbacks. They've certainly had very different paths to this point in time. It will certainly be interesting to see all eyes, obviously on their teams, but also on these two young players. Gene Wojciechowski is back with us. And, Gene, I know you've spent some time with Stetson Bennett. Uh, interested to hear what you can tell us. Well, Wendy, Georgia fans really have no idea how close Stetson Bennett came to leaving Georgia this fall. By his own count, he had only taken about 20 combined snaps from spring and fall practice. He was buried on the depth chart. He wasn't really even in play as a backup quarterback. He seriously considered transferring. Instead, he stayed, and Georgia and this team is glad that he did. So, Stetson, do you mind reading this scouting report of you? Okay. Shorter quarterback who was listed under six feet, lacks stature and has average arm strength, was not super productive in junior college, projects as a backup quarterback at a power five level. Yeah, no, I don't agree. I don't know. I've always thought I was better than a lot of people thought I was. Stetson Bennett IV, all five foot eleven of him, maybe, isn't just a Georgia Bulldog, he's an underdog. He's been talking about this moment since he could barely talk. He was three years old, and we had been working on how to put your hands on a football, and I asked him what he wanted to do with it, and he said, I want to play quarterback at the University of Georgia. It's all he ever wanted. In high school, Bennett lacked height, but not ingenuity. At football recruiting camps, he became a fashion legend. 
he wore the mailman hat. It was quirky, and at the time when you go to all these different different camps, all these kids are trying to get noticed, trying to get recognized. The mailman delivers, so it kind of stuck after that. Bennett had a nickname, but he didn't have a big-time football destination. Okay, so tell me all the SEC schools you got offers from. Oh, man, there's so many. Um, yeah, I don't think anybody did. Exactly zero Power 5 programs offered Bennett a scholarship. Instead, he walked on at Georgia in 2017 and then walked away after a season on the scout team to go play here. Jones College, a junior college in Ellisville, Mississippi, known for producing Power 5 players. I think he needed a change. Uh, I thought it was a great time for Stett to come in and, and I guess you could say find himself again. It was awesome. I loved it. Just to try to get out of there and, and go to a bigger school, just like everybody's goal is when they go to JUCO. Did you think you would ever see him at Georgia again? No, I honestly didn't. He wanted to go play and compete and show his talents. You know, Stett was, was, wanted to be back at Georgia. He grew up there. You cut him open, he's going to bleed Georgia blood. Bennett returned to Athens in 2019, this time on scholarship, but was stuck behind Jake Fromm. In August of 2020, he was buried so deep on the depth chart behind Jamie Newman and Dwan Mathis, coaches told him he had no realistic chance at the starting job. After that conversation happened, I was like, well, this sucks. But then Newman shocked Georgia by opting out. And when Mathis struggled in the season opener against Arkansas, Bennett got his unlikely chance. Yeah, he's got the nickname, the mailman, so we'll see if he can deliver for Georgia. Just went and tapped everybody on the butt and said, let's go, let's go, uh, let's go put some points on the board. Bennett underneath, hits his tight end for the touchdown. Very poised, very calm, but I'd seen that in so many uh, scrimmages. Bennett helped Georgia beat Arkansas, then Auburn. And you can't throw that football any better if you're Stetson Bennett. Then Tennessee. Touchdown, Georgia! I was right down the road the other day, and I was like, I'm starting quarterback at University of Georgia. That's pretty cool. In all, Bennett started half of the dog's games in 2020. The coolest part about his journey, never giving up. It's cool that he never lost the sight of his dreams. Even when JT Daniels became the starter, Bennett did what he always does, stay put and stay ready. Stetson Bennett expected to start at quarterback for Georgia rather than JT Daniels. Once again, he was there when Georgia needed him, and he's been there ever since. Bennett loads, goes that way to the corner. Got it. Touchdown. going to get a chance to redeem himself against Alabama and Indy. I go out there and I don't really have anything to prove to anybody. Um, I'm not playing with a chip on my shoulder. I'm not saying, hey, you know, you say this, so I'm going to prove you wrong. I just, I just believe I'm, I'm the best guy out there. I asked Stetson Bennett if he was playing to prove others wrong or prove himself right. He said he does it to prove himself right. He's really not concerned what others think. All that matters is what he thinks 
and he has always believed that he could be the starting quarterback at Georgia. And Wendy, I'll tell you, when we talked to Kirby Smart earlier today, Kirby admitted he screwed it up. He misjudged Bennett and that Bennett had proved him wrong and this entire Georgia staff wrong, too. Woj, I love everything about this story. He just wouldn't give up. And now you talk about an opportunity to prove that no. you were right. You got a national championship. You win that. Well, you know, you certainly made a name for yourself in Athens, Georgia. And nobody, he won't be buying a beer anytime soon. Bennett will have a chance to redeem himself against the Tide, who have given him a tough time. He's thrown a total of 14 interceptions in his career. Five of them have come in two games against Alabama, both of those were losses. We've got plenty more to come. We'll talk next about which team in this title game has the better overall NFL draft talent. Todd McShay back with us. He'll have the answer to that question coming up. Todd McShay came out with his updated rankings for the 2022 NFL Draft. Two pass rushers in Aiden Hutchinson and Kayvon Thibodeau led the way. Hutchinson officially declared for the draft today. Todd McShay is back with us to talk about the players we're going to see Monday night. But first, let's start with this. You've got Hutchinson and Thibodeau. 1-2, Todd. What does separate these two pass rushers? Not a whole lot, Wendy. You know, with, with Aiden Hutchinson, I, I kind of know what I'm getting. Let's put it that way. I don't think his upside's nearly as, as great as Thibodeau, but he's still six foot six, 265 pounds. He had 14 sacks this past year, uh, set a, a Michigan record with, with those sacks. And he does it with length, power, quickness, and also the ability to tie together his feet with his hands. He's so efficient as a pass rusher. So you've got that with Hutchinson. Now, Thibodeau, he's a little bit shorter at 6'5", 260 pounds, but I think he's got a little bit more power in his body, and he's also a more flexible athlete. I mean, he's a guy that can bend the edge a little bit sharper than, than Hutchinson when you watch the two on tape. He's got a little bit more explosiveness in his movement, his suddenness and twitchiness, but he disappeared a lot more. Now, you could point to Aiden Hutchinson in the last game against Georgia, and yes, he, he didn't have a great game, but every other big game, Hutchinson showed up and, and performed extremely well. With, with Thibodeau, those two Utah games, he had one sack, and he really was quiet for the vast majority of those games, so a little bit of difference in terms of the consistency. I think Thibodeau is a little bit more talented, but Hutchinson, I think, is a kind of a complete package and ready to go right now in the NFL. Listen, two teams are left Monday night. You don't, you don't get there. There's a reason you get there. You got plenty of talent. So when you look at Georgia, when you look at Alabama and you think about the 2022 draft, who's got the better draft talent that we'll see Monday night? Yeah, if you're just talking about eligible prospects for 2022, I've got to give a slight edge to Georgia. Now, you look at it in the top 100 in terms of my prospects this year, Georgia has a ridiculous number of nine guys in there. But Alabama has eight. <laughs> I mean, that's how close it is between the two. Now let's go to the top 32 prospects. Georgia has three. We're talking about guys now potentially in the first round with uh, Nicole Dean at linebacker, defensive end Trayvon Walker, and, and Jordan Davis at defensive tackle. But Alabama's got two as well, and their two are the highest two rated of, of the five guys that I project in the first round from these two teams in Evan Neal, the offensive tackle, who I have three overall, and number six overall is Jamison Williams at the wide receiver position. So you're really splitting hairs between these two teams. 
Listen, Todd, let's let's put in a, a phrase that makes all the difference. Uh, eligibility, regardless of eligibility, uh, who's the most draftable player that will be on that field Monday night? I'm going to go with two guys, and they're both on Alabama's team. And, and to be honest with you, I'm talking about, about Will Anderson, the defensive end from Alabama, and Bryce Young, the quarterback. I think they would be the top two picks in this year's draft if they were eligible. That's how impressed I am with both of them. We'll start with Will Anderson. I mean, this guy, he led the FBS with 74 pressures and 17 and a half sacks this season. You watch him, he's got the violent hands, the first step explosiveness, the ability to, to shave off the corner and the edge, exploding through quarterbacks but what I love about him is this dude every single play plays like the game of football is being taken away from him after that snap every single play he's going 100% and I just love the way he plays now Bryce Young on the, on the other hand I talked about it earlier I love how he plays and beats you with his mind from inside the pocket he has an NFL mind already as a first year starter in college I can't wait to see how he continues to develop with more game experience and play in these big games because the, the sky is the limit for him you can point to his narrow frame and he doesn't have great size but he knows how to protect himself he's been durable he's so smart with where he's going with the ball and he's accurate has the arm strength and he's got mobility in his back pocket if he needs it think about that statement though you know the mind of an NFL player as a first-year college starter you talk about sky's the limit my goodness uh, that mind is a powerful thing listen how, how about this we know Monday night's a big stage anybody connected to football will mm -hmm. certainly be watching who has the best opportunity to improve their draft stock on Monday yeah, I think Georgia defensive end Trayvon Walker has a great opportunity. He didn't have a sack in the SEC championship game, but he was very effective in terms of disrupting the quarterback and also versus the run. I think he's so explosive in terms of his ability to generate power from the ground up. You know, He doesn't need a lot of space in order to knock an offensive lineman back. He just explodes out of his stance and drives guys back. He played pretty well when he matched up against Evan Neal, who I talked about the offensive tackle as the as the number three prospect in this class. They're going to put him up against Neal. They're going to put him up in left defensive end against the right tackle for Alabama. He's got a chance in this game when you need to pressure the quarterback to have a huge game against Bryce Young and the Alabama offense. All right, Todd. I don't want, I don't want to jinx us, but that, that was pretty smooth. Okay? We did it. Start to finish. I like I'm that blaming Pollock for the whole thing. I, I know he pulled the plug uh, on me. <laughs> There, there's no question it was his fault. So uh, there's that. All right, Todd McShay will be back with us shortly. I think Des, I mean, uh, Pollock might be as well. Uh, listen, a good time, though, to promote this. Not Monday night. We're going to talk about that more, obviously, but also the NFL draft. All seven rounds will have complete coverage on ESPN and ABC. That starts Thursday, April 28th through Saturday the 30th. When we come back on College Football Live, we'll look at the X factors in Monday's title game. Which players may have the biggest impact in Monday's outcome? It may surprise you. Taking a look at what the odds are, courtesy of Caesar Sportsbook. Georgia actually a three-point favorite despite the loss last month. The over-under sits at 52, which would be well below 65-point total from the SEC title game. With that in mind, let's talk about the potential X factors in this game. We'll start with the Georgia Bulldogs. David, and uh, your opinion and who might be the difference maker here. 
Well, X factor can be defined many different ways. We typically don't define him as the biggest baller in the in the game, but Brock Bowers, we have a tape, so we wanted to show you just how good he is. He's the X, Y, Z, A, B, C. He's all the factors for Georgia. Um, just unique, man. You line him up at tight end, and he has the ability with uh, with his with his catching ability to make catches, obviously. But the biggest thing is just watch the speed. I mean, this guy catches it between one, two, three, four, five, six guys, and he gone. I mean, that's how that's the kind of speed he has to go 70 plus yards. So uh, can catch it short, take it long, can catch it in the zones, can beat corners. Um, so it's pretty crazy. And then you know, John Fitzpatrick is a guy that we talked about a lot for Georgia. Big, massive tight end can line him up to block inline defensive ends. Split Brock Bowers out wide. Use Brock Bowers now as a decoy. Oh, is he going to block? No, 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 no. Now he's going to run a go route off of it uh, and make a big play. So, listen, the, the reason this offense is where it is and the way it's developed the way it is, it's because of 19. This guy's a freshman, I know, but he's, he's the best player on Georgia's offense, and he's one of the best players in the country already. Yeah, I tell you what, and um, Brock Bowers is the leading receiver for Georgia, and my X Factor is the second leading receiver for Georgia. Jermaine Burton, um, he's a receiver that you can move him around, you can put him in a slot. He can get vertical too, though. He'll run past defenders. Really good after the catch, too, and I think with with Brock Bowers getting so much attention, and obviously you know you got to double him. Hey, you can't double everybody. So I think a guy like uh, Jermaine Burton is a guy who can be an X-factor, can make some big catches, especially like on third down. He can get vertical. He can blow a lid off of defense. So my, I would say that Jermaine Burton would be my X-factor, averaging 19 yards per catch, too. Yeah, that's not, yeah. not too shabby. Des, listen, you do it for one, you got to do it for the other. Uh, let's talk X-Factors for <laughs> Alabama. Who you got? I, I like the tight end name, uh, Jaleel Billingsley. Now, you know, we know two things about Jaleel. One, that he's a really athletic six foot four, 230-pound uh, tight end who, again, you can, you can flex him out as a wide out because he's a matchup nightmare for linebackers and for strong safeties because he's just so big. Great, great hands, runs excellent routes. The second thing that we know about him, David, is that he has a hard time staying out of uh, Coach Saban's doghouse. But when he's on the field, he's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he talked about him in the beginning of the season. He was like, listen, some people aren't doing what they need to done to get where we need to go. And he was calling out Billingsley, but obviously he's going to have to come on with Mechie's injury. But another guy, Ja'Cory Brooks, you've seen him in the big-time moments this year. Auburn, they had to have a touchdown. Ja'Cory Brooks was the guy who made a big over-the-shoulder catch in the end zone. Ja'Cory Brooks against Cincinnati, another guy that made a big play right before the half to kind of put the game um, to create some separation in that game versus Cincinnati. So Mechie is not here. He's got a torn ACL. That He was a 1,000-yard receiver this season. Ja'Cory Brooks has been the guy you can tell that Bryce Young trusts the most and has thrown the ball the most and has made some big plays this season. All right, guys. And you know what? Before it's all over, I think we all need to do the Saban, as we call it. But, you know, uh, he'll stay out of his doghouse if he, if he comes away with that trophy on Monday night. Uh, we're going to talk a little more about playoff expansion when we come back. It is still on the table. Heather Dennett will join us to talk about where we stand and when we might see a plan in place. That's coming up next. Games are often decided by the little things, which become big things. 
bell ring, end over end kick. Joel missed the punt, and the freshman tries to get back on it. I think Ja'Cory Brooks recovered it for Alabama. Two plays that were not might have swung the momentum in Cincinnati's favor. Bryce backpedals. They pick up the blitz. Bryce options it off right side. Robinson running room, 30. Down the right sideline. One thing we have not seen Alabama do yet, they have not tried to throw the ball vertically yet. You might see it on this possession. And they throw deep to a open receiver. Touchdown Alabama. Ja'Cory Brooks. That was a beautiful read. He found the matchup against Arquan Bush. They made a beautiful read and throw to Ja'Cory Brooks. And Alabama now with a 17-3 lead. Isn't it nice to have a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback running your offense? Yeah, it's pretty good right there. Hey, he ready to run. He ready to go. I said, oh, yeah, he ready to go. I said, yeah, he ready to go. Check out the college football playoff uh, inside the college football playoff now streaming exclusively on ESPN+. The leaders of the college football playoff committee will meet Saturday in Indianapolis to discuss the four-team format. And we've seen some lopsided results in the semifinal games, including this season. You can look at those numbers, and it tells you all you need to know about how close these games have been. We are joined now by ESPN senior writer Heather Denich. And Heather, as I mentioned, uh, this group will get together and meet on Saturday. How much do you think these game results, the, the lopsided nature are factoring into this decision ultimately? Not a lot, Wendy. I've spent a lot of time this week talking to the commissioners who will be in those meetings on Saturday and Sunday, possibly this weekend, and their bigger focus remains the actual format. At the heart of these discussions is should it be five automatic qualifiers from the Power Five conferences plus one from the highest-ranked group of five conference, their champion, or should it be the six highest ranked conference champions period. There is a sense in the room that some people are stuck on having the five automatic qualifiers for the power five conference champions. Can they agree on it? If they can agree on a 12 team format, it can go to the presidents and chancellors on Monday who will meet before the national championship game for a vote. But I spoke with big 12 commissioner Bob Bowlesby yesterday, and he told me that he would be pleasantly surprised if they could come to an agreement because it seems to be that there are more people in the room who are in the best interests of their own leagues and their schools as opposed to the greater good for college football. Mountain West Commissioner Craig Thompson told me just minutes ago that he thinks that they need to put aside those personal interests and do what's best for college football if they're going to get to that 12-team format this weekend. Heather, thank you. Uh, th it makes sense. Certainly easier said than done. Uh, thank you, as always. And, Todd, uh, let's switch gears. If we do see an expanded playoff, regardless of why or how we get there, what do you think will happen with regards to game results? Well, listen, we can't predict the game results, but I know this. There, there are a lot of teams that didn't want to play Utah the way Utah was playing down the stretch. Ohio State proved that they were capable of coming back and beating Utah in that great Rose Bowl game. And Ohio State, in my opinion, is capable of beating Georgia. They're capable of beating Alabama. So I just think in a, now where we are, 
so many of these guys, we're seeing Ohio State, for example, had four players that are going to be drafted in the first two rounds opted out of playing in that game. Whether you like it or not, these other bowl games, even if they're New, Year, New Year's Six games, they're not as important, and we're not seeing the quality on the field. So I say 12 teams is great. We're going to see better quality bowl games down the stretch, and more teams have a chance to make a run. Well, I tell you what, I, I've seen these teams live and in person, and I, I think we got the two best teams, which is the goal. Um, as far as uh, Ty saying Ohio State, I don't know, you say they would beat Georgia or beat Alabama? I said they I'm could. not sure I would go that far. Uh, oh, well, I mean, I guess anybody could beat anybody on any given day. But my point <laughs> is, I believe that if, if you go to these expansion, what I would love to see, which no one's talking about, is – uh, some home games for teams up north. If you can get some of these teams down south in the SEC to travel up north, especially when you're talking about late December, you're talking about January, and they have to play playoff games, I tell you, I guarantee you, that will start to even the playing field just a little bit because they never ever travel up north to the Midwest or to the you know northeast to play games. So if that's part of this expansion, where some of these teams can host playoff games, then I think that will start to be really interesting <laughs> for the college football playoff. I would love to see it because you, you don't know because you never ever see it. They never travel north. Because yeah, I'm cold just thinking about that, bro. No, I, absolutely not. Uh, hey, when, hey, one thing, I'll, I'll be real quick. One of the things is we saw the Rose Bowl was really awesome. The Sugar Bowl was really awesome. I think we would expand the playoffs. We would have more competitive games. Now, listen, we, Michigan got thumped and, and, and Cincinnati got thumped. You're still going to have two great teams like Georgia and Alabama that might have uncompetitive games, but you might have some really good upsets in the middle that could be some good meat of that, and you keep more players involved for longer. So I think it would be good. I think we're going to get to 12. <laughs> All right, David, I, I know game day goes to some cold places, but I, for one, would pay money to see you freezing on the sidelines with your parka and your big hat. I don't know. It, it, it's worth it. Uh, college I don't, football. I don't know what a park is. Right I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back. pronunciation of the word family well it went viral with family. good reason when he was asked about it during LSU's bowl game yesterday here's what he had to say about the pronunciation listen whether it was dancing or I couldn't get my accent down <laughs> with family listen I'm from Boston we don't have strong accents and by the way you cannot get on me about my accent because you got one too Todd, listen, you, you're from Boston. I live in Boston. I, 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 that's not the accent. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I grew up in Swampscott, Massachusetts, nine miles away from Everett, where Brian Kelly grew up. I never heard anyone in my neighborhood say family like that. You can have it smacked out of you like my mom smacked <laughs> out of me, but hey. you're never around family up in Mass. <laughs> <laughs> 